Good morning. How y'all doing? Cool. I am waking up also, so don't worry. You're not alone. But I am thankful to be here. Uh, I've got a lot that I want to cover, uh, a lot to say uh, from our passage today. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, we're going to be reading out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And, and before I read, I do want to say this, that part of the approach I'm taking today is a kind of 30,000-foot view of the passage. Ephesians chapter 2 as a whole is a very dense pack, uh, passage. Uh, there's a lot that I could say. There's a lot that has been said. Uh, so if you hear me talk today and say to yourself, oh, man, he didn't touch on this or he didn't uh, parse this passage or this particular verse, just know that the approach I'm taking today is, is one uh, from 30,000-foot uh, view, and uh, I think there's a lot of beauty to extract from this passage, but I also think that there's a lot of challenge that this passage presents to us, uh, particularly as Christians in our country, uh, and I want to be able to offer that to us today. You know, earlier I sat, and as I heard um, Pastor Micah preach, uh, or rather uh, read the Lord's Prayer uh, we got to the portion where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I thought, how challenging of a prayer that is, that we would ask God for his kingdom to be established, not our own, uh, for his will to be done, both in our lives and in our society, not our own. I think it's, it's a really challenging uh, portion of the prayer, and it reminded me of our passage today. So I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and we'll jump right in. It says, so then remember that you at one time were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done by the flesh in human hands. At the time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Or rather in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So I kind of want to approach this passage in the way that I think sometimes I walk through art exhibits. So sometimes I walk through art exhibits uh, and I realize that the whole, th the, the, the whole night or the whole space is influenced by a singular theme. But as I go to each 
piece of art, whether it's a painting or a, or a sculpture or a piece of film, however the art exhibit is designed, each piece of art is offering me a portrait or an angle of the singular theme that the exhibit wants to show. And I think part of what Ephesians chapter 2 is offering us is several different portraits of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the life and journey that we have with Jesus. And I want to be able to offer two portraits to us. The first one is the portrait of an alienated humanity. The first is the portrait of an alienated humanity. You know, it's interesting. The passage starts by saying that there is a certain group of people that at one time they were Gentiles in the flesh. And he gets even more specific as the verse goes on. Uh, and he explains what that Gentile verse means. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded, and foreigners of the covenants of promise, without hope and without God. And if that word Gentile is a foreign word to you, Gentile is simply a, a word used to refer to an ethnic group other than Jewish people. But Paul describes them as people who were foreigners, foreigners to both the promises of God to the hope that he offers and to God himself but what I want us to realize is that this this passage is written from the point of view of what he calls the circumcised or the Jewish community and I think that's an important detail to highlight because the distinction that this verse talks about uh, between the Gentiles and the Jews is not one that God intended, but rather one that came from the way that God's people lived, not how God intended for them to live. This almost violent distinction that exists between them. It is true what the verse says. God dealt with the world through a small group of people who we've known as the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, in each generation of that group, God found an individual through whom he was going to talk to the people and offer them promises. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. These were the individuals that God often chose to speak to the different generations of this particular people group. And in a sense, it did mean that anyone outside of the group of this people weren't hearing from God in the unique way that the Israelites were hearing from God. But it's really important that we remember that this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is written from the perspective of the circumcised or the people of God. The, the ones who he chose back in Genesis and not from the perspective of God. In other words, this violent distinction that the verse makes between those who are Gentiles and those who are part of the circumcised community is not God's intention when he chooses the people of God. That God intended for this people that he chose to be a light to the world, a blessing to the nations, that his choosing them wasn't so that there could exist this violent distinction between them who he chose and the others who he did not choose. That the distinction, the harsh distinction that, disti that, that exists between these two group of people was the doing of the people God chose, not God choosing them. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. 
It says that God says to uh, Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is why God chose Abraham and his family. So that they would be a blessing to the world around them. Or Isaiah 49 verse 6 where God tells his people, it is not enough for you to be my servant, God says. And restoring the protected ones to Israel. Instead, I will also make you a light for the nation to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Church, what am I saying here? God's intention was never to draw a line of protection around this group of people. Instead, God, God choosing this people is a means. And that means was to recover what was lost in the beginning, what was lost in the garden. God chose this group of people to be an instrument by which the rest of the world would gain access to God. A means for blessing. But instead, this people that God chose twisted their privilege into favoritism. And instead of being a blessing to the nations, they despised the nations. They barricaded themselves from anyone who was not like them and in a sense gave birth to this kind of Jewish superiority. One that God did not intend when he chose them. Bless you. Blessing to the nations. So whenever the Jews in the Bible heard the word Gentile, they didn't simply cringe. Their blood boiled because of the deep-seated animosity they had for them. Simply because God chose them and not the Gentiles. So the word hostility in verse 14 is appropriate. In fact, <laughs> the wall of hostility that's mentioned in verse 14 wasn't, wasn't simply symbolic. There was an actual wall that existed to further that reality. Let me give you all some history. There was a noticeable part in the temple during that time that supported this reality. In fact, the building of the temple itself was constructed on an elevated surface. And the closer you were to the center or where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was, where the Jewish community believed that God's presence was, the closer you were to the center the more access you were presumed to have with God. Let me explain to y'all the layout of the temple. First, immediately outside of the inner court or where the Ark of the Covenant was, was the court of the priests. Priests were the ones chosen by God to be the mediators between God and the people of God. So the courts where they were able to exist in and live in were the first, was the first inner core. East of that was the core of Israel. This is where the men of Israel were able to uh, exist and do life in, those that weren't uh, priests. And then east of that was the court of women, the women of Israel, where they could be. That was, their, that was their threshold. They could not pass that point. 
as the men of Israel could not pass the court that they existed in. So we have these three layers right after the inner courts where God's presence exists. The court of the priests, the court of the uh, men of Israel, then the court of the women. From there, you would have to go five steps to a walled, uh, to a walled platform. And then on the other side of that wall, you would have to walk 14 more steps to another wall. And beyond that wall was the court of the Gentiles. The point in which they could not pass. And what was interesting was that in this court where the Gentiles were allowed to exist, from any part of this court, they would be able to look up and view the temple where the priests would be where the women would be and where the men would be and where they presumably believe where the Ark of the Covenant or the presence of God was. They could view it from any point of their court where they, that was designated just for them, but they were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from being in the presence because of this surrounding wall. And at certain entry points of their court into the other court, courts, there were these signs that were written in many languages that read this way. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. What a dark evil it is, church. What a dark evil that the Gentiles were made to believe that God's presence was only something that they were able to see from a distance but never access. And church, this isn't something that only existed in their time. In fact, this is the longest American tradition. It is the longest American tradition when it comes to African Americans, immigrants, and the indigenous community. That as a country, we allow things like freedom and dignity and progress and opportunity to be seen only from a distance, but never creating pathways to them. And this is precisely what Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul is trying to highlight when he writes this, that in America, faith is often about control. We design our faith in a way that mostly closely nurtures our cultural values, but doesn't challenge them. We create walls and barriers and divisions between us that we were never meant to exist with. We construct walls and we fuel them by fear and suspicion and when anyone else crosses them that was not allowed to exist, when they cross them and something happens to them, we blame them for it. You know, something interesting happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when King David is laid up in his palace made of cedar, a beautiful, beautiful palace where he laid up and he thought to himself, as verse uh, 14 tells us, look, I am living in a cedar house, says David. Polly with his feet up. Amaretto Sour next to him, probably. And he thinks to himself, man, look at me. I'm living in a house of cedar while, while the ark of God sits in a tent behind some curtains. So nice of him to think about that, isn't it? But God's response in the passage is so surprising to me. Listen to what he says. God responds to David by saying, are you to build me a house to dwell in, David? 
Have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, asking them, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Look, David is not satisfied, and you almost admire his dissatisfaction, the fact that he says this, the fact that he's aware of this. You admire it. I don't want God's ark to exist behind a covenant. It's, it's, it's almost as if to say that he is above that, which indeed he is. God deserves all beauty and honor and glory, and David is acknowledging this. And it feels like a very noble declaration on the part of David, yet... In a very subtle way, it communicates forgetfulness on the part of David. It communicates what his power and his wealth and his privilege have insulated him of. You see, the biggest mistake of David is that he assumes that what God wants is what he wants. And church, sadly, I think we make the same assumptions sometimes. We assume that our version of the way life ought to be is the same version that God has. We assume that how we envision society to function is the same as how God envisions it to function. And the greatest darkness that has come out of this assumption, church, is that we've tried to fit God into the houses and boxes that we've built for ourselves. This is why later in Acts chapter 7, verse 48, as Stephen is talking to the religious leaders, the the very same religious people that we see even in David's time, he says this about them. He says, what sort of house could you build for me? Did not my hands make all these things? (laughs) Almost as if to say there is no house you can build that could contain me. There are no categories you can create that could define me. There is no nation or people group that has a monopoly on me. There is nothing your hands can build that my word hasn't already provided for you. What David forgets is often, church, what we forget. That in our attempts to build a place for God to dwell in, that those attempts are nothing more than our attempts to domesticate God. To bring God into places where we believe he should exist. And perhaps more importantly and more destructively, that God ought to behave in the way that we think he ought to behave. You see, when we attempt to fit God into our quote-unquote houses or categories, we attempt to contain the uncontainable. We attempt to reduce the eternal to our definitions. We are attempting to shrink God down to our fears. Because more than often, the reason why we exclude others from the designs of our tables is simply because of fear. And when we say that God ought to behave as we do, that God ought to have the same convictions that we do, it's because we are trying to reduce God to our fears. Yet with this question, God makes it abundantly clear that he cannot and will not be reduced to the houses and boxes that we create for him. That God will not be domesticated. God is not an American project. You see, part of what the verses in chapter 2 tell us is that if it were up to us, 
if we were the builders, if we were the designers, if it were up to us, we would build homes for God that exclude some. If it were up to us, we would build houses for God that exclude others. And yet God sees what we often fail to see. That if we are the builders of the house, our biases, our prejudices will show up in the designs and blueprints of these so-called houses. And the temple of Jerusalem is the prime evidence. Our country's history is the evidence. The immigrant's experience is the evidence. Black and brown kids in inner cities are the evidences of this truth. Division is a constant reminder, a constant characteristic of a community that lives without God and without a grounded hope. The most blaring portrait that I see in these first few verses is that of an alienated humanity. But thanks, thanks be to God that it isn't the only portrait. But we can't get to this second portrait without acknowledging and embracing, however reluctant, this first portrait. But here's the next portrait. The portrait of a peacemaking God. The portrait of a peacemaking God. Peace is a constant theme in this passage, isn't it? Just look at verse 14, 15, 17. 14 says, he is our peace. 15 says, so that he might create in himself a new man from the two, resulting in peace. Verse 17 tells us, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far and near. He says both of them needed that. Those who were far and near needed the message of peace. But when we hear uh, about peace, we hear anyone talk about peace, we kind of perk up, don't we? And I think the reason why we perk up in a sense and our radars turn on is because we live in a world of so much conflict that has conditioned us to long for peace despite the fact that sometimes we don't pursue it. But we perk up when we hear talk of peace. But we have to ask the question, what is peace anyway? And here's what I think peace is according to the verses offered to us in Ephesians chapter 2. Peace is when we have right relationship. When we have whole relationship. When we have healthy relationship. When that relationship is offering us precisely the other thing that the relationship desires to offer, offers us to make us whole, to make us complete. And when peace is when that thing is, uh, uh, peace is when that thing that's causing us tension and conflict either between you uh, and your spouse, you and a friend, uh, no longer exists. When it's removed, that thing that was wedged between us is removed. That's in a sense what we call peace, whether it's between you and your wife, you and your children, whether it's between you and a neighbor, whether it's between nations, or whether it's between us and God. That thing that was once wedged between us no long, is no longer there, but I'm sure that we've also heard that peace shouldn't be reduced to the absence of something, but also the presence of something. Peace comes from our Jewish neighbors and the word that they use to describe it, shalom, which means completeness. When something is whole, 
when it has a depth of integrity in the way that a building structure that goes high up has to have uh, integrity uh, going down, otherwise it's not consistent and uh, destructive and dangerous. This idea of shalom communicates that same structural idea that we have depth in order to go high. Nowadays, the word shalom is sometimes nothing more than a high and by, a greeting. But in Jesus' time, shalom was more of a deep desire or a prayer for someone, almost as if to say to them, as you said, shalom, I pray that God be with you and you with God, which is a deeply beautiful thing to say just when you want to say what's up. It's like, man, they got real serious. I just wanted to say hello to you, right? A deep desire or prayer for someone. But I've got to be honest, this is not the kind of peace, or rather this peace is not the one that I think about when I think about my upbringing. And don't get me wrong, I love my upbringing, the way that it shaped me, the way that it molded me, but, but we didn't do peace as well as we thought we did. If I ever had beef with somebody, and by beef I don't mean a meal, I mean like conflict. Uh, whenever I had beef with somebody... We would just not talk to each other, and we certainly didn't talk about the beef we had with one another. We would always just be peaceful again at some point, kind of just believe, ah, we'll get over it, right? We're either made up, either because we just didn't want to deal with the fact that we weren't talking, or when I was younger, it was just my parents made me make up with my cousins, right? And they forced us to say sorry to one another. But we never deeply dealt with whatever conflict existed between us. And as a result, we would superficially confront our tension and we would rush our forgiveness. Now, I know that we're here, a community of faith and forgiveness is a staple of ours. But I think oftentimes we rush to forgiveness. I think we forgive too quickly. We don't consider the tension or the conflict that caused this uh, fracture to begin with. And that's often how I lived my life with my cousins and in my family. And so I shouldn't be surprised that in a big family that hasn't been willing to deeply deal with its family history, of which involves unforgiveness and abuse and other kinds of darkness, that we tend to experience as a result a false kind of peace. Not a real one. So if this is how it was for me uh, uh, in a family that didn't deal with conflict uniquely or the history that informed our conflict and trauma, then I imagine how if we don't have conversations about how that's happening for us as a society, how often the peace that we think we have is false rather than true. We either say to ourselves, I'll let time heal, which really doesn't happen, or we rush our forgiveness, and a rushed forgiveness avoids conflicts at all costs rather than pursuing healing and maturity at all costs. Rushed forgiveness creates a false peace because it only superficially deals with conflict. And because we value perception and image more than we do depth and maturity, or because we apathetically accept conflict or because we've just grown accustomed to unforgiveness 
Because some of us just live with things in our heart, with unforgiveness or with tension or with conflict with others in our heart. And we've just said, man, I've just learned to cope with it. I've just learned to make room for it. I kind of just shove it up to the side. I make a corner for it. You just live that way because we've done that. What we do is we keep peace. We don't make peace. And church, I've got to be really honest with you to make that mistake and believing that peacekeeping is the same as peacemaking is disastrous to the church and the society that we're a part of. The two are very different. There's a phrase that comes out of ancient Rome, ancient Roman society that we hear today uh, sometimes called Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. In ancient Roman society, the Romans then thought that they had peace, and they probably did. And the ones who believed that they had peace were the Romans that lived in the center of the city, those with greatest power and influence that were able to insulate themselves from the rest of the world, and particularly the rest of their immediate society. They believed they had peace, and they probably did have a version of peace. They lived in the city. And everything seemed okay. But what about those outside the city? What about those that lived on the edges and margins of society? Were they able to say the same? Was Pax Romana their mantra also? Was Shalom their reality? Church, the irony of peacekeeping is that it can be violent. Because peacekeeping is about control. We want to control the situation, the relationship. We want to control the group. We want to control the society. We want to control whatever ecosystem we are a part of. Peacemaking is violent. And our pursuit of control often leads to violence, both physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. We become violent with each other because we have something that we've got to protect. Our version of peace. And some of us, as we've experienced, violence creates more violence. But that violence typically only happens on the margin. Which is why the people in the center of Rome were able to say Pax Romana. Violence happens typically in those places to the weaker. To the less represented. To the ones with less power. To the minority. What's interesting about Pax Romana is that it calls what it has at the center, peace, yet violence has only moved from the center to the margins. Here's what I mean. Father Richard Rohr, Catholic priest, says it this way. He says, do you have any idea of all the slavery and oppression, all the killing, the torture, all the millions of people who have existed around the edges of every empire so that the center of the empire could say that it has peace? Every time you build a pyramid, certain people at the top will have their peace, yet there will be bloody bodies all around the bottom of those pyramids. Those at the top are usually blind to the price of their false peace. Pax Romana offers a false peace by sacrificing others. Pax Romana is not compelling, nor is it faithful. Family, what we need is Pax Christi. 
Pax Christi is the peace of Christ. One that Paul is heralding here in chapter 2. Pax Christi is not keeping the peace. Pax Christi is making peace. Why? Because making peace, church, living for the purpose of peace, and actually realizing that in the spaces that you occupy is costly. And the first thing that it's going to cost you is the burden of inspecting every corner of conflict and fear and violence in the spaces that you occupy. So that when you say there is peace, peace actually exists everywhere and for everyone. So it is a burden to make peace rather than keep peace. This is precisely why our passage today says, you who were far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Jesus allowed violence to be done to him so that everyone had access to peace. Not so that the center or the dominant can have peace. This phrase is so deeply important and here's why. Not only because in it we learn that Jesus was slain on the cross, but also the hostility that stood between us and God as well as between each other was slain on the cross. It was Jesus' blood that made room for true peace. It was, the ex it was at the expense of God's blood that came intimacy it was his sacrifice that makes our healing and wholeness possible. We don't have connection with Jesus. We don't have connection with the Spirit. We don't have access to God. We cannot pray our Father had it not been for the peacemaking responsibility of Jesus to allow violence to be done to him. A true peace. Not a peace that only some can say they have. And church, if it was his blood that made for peace, then guess whose blood is not necessary? Yours and mine. Yet how do we still live in a society and sometimes have a Christian expression that says they have peace at the expense of others? Church, Every time we demand red blood from black flesh or brown flesh, we declare that Jesus' divine blood just wasn't enough. As a society, we've been sacrificing the blood of marginalized, of marginalized body for more time than we would like to admit. As a society, we've been building our peace on the blood of black bodies, immigrant bodies, and others. This is the peace that Jesus offers us, the one that came at his expense as a result of his blood, not ours. That's good news. That's good news. It is good news to know that the relationship we can have with God, who between us stood a wall of hostility, was now broken down by Jesus. This is the peace that Jesus offers, and I'll finish in just a few moments. This is the peace that Jesus offers. But I think sometimes we live like we don't want this peace. We don't want a peace that involves making uh, us equal to our social enemy. You don't want a peace that unifies us to others 
or anyone that looks like us, thinks like us, behaves like us, anyone other than that. This is how I've often believed that our country really struggles to be with God in an intimate way. It has taken what God extended to humanity in Genesis 1, but it has left God behind. God gave us, God gave humanity the power and dominion over creation, yet somehow we have perverted that to exercise dominance over one another. And I think if there's anything that we're learning from these verses is that Jesus desires to uh, remind us that it was his blood, not our own, that makes for peace. You guys heard me talk a little bit about this uh, a few months, a few weeks ago when we talked about the Our Father. That the Our Father is a challenging prayer, particularly those words, because they remind us that Jesus is disrupting the idea that we alone, or that you alone, or that I alone have access to God. But rather when we pray our, it says something about the radical nature of reconciliation, which is precisely what Ephesians 2 is reminding us of, that the two became one in Christ. And because of that, we can now together pray our Father. We can now be reconciled together. And that our differences build out the full expression of who God is. And this is precisely what Paul is reminding us here, particularly in verse 18. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to one spirit and father. Church, I pray that as we walk through the exhibit of Ephesians chapter 2, that we would see these portraits both as beautiful and challenging. As offering us huge kind of philosophical ideas, but also offering us practical ways to live in our world. How have we built tables, designed homes to try to domesticate God and exclude others? How have we forgotten and despised the fact that it is Jesus' blood that makes for true peace? Have I been keeping peace or have we been making it? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would do with it what I never could, and that is to make it come alive in our spirits. God, I pray that we would go from theory to practice, that people uh, around us would know who God is, not because of something cool or meaningful or deep we said, but because of how we invited them into our lives and how we allowed ourselves to be invited into theirs. Spirit, do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.